Welcome to That Feels Like Home, a new podcast by the Museum of Domestic Design and Architecture, reaching you from Middlesex University in London. I'm Ana Baeza, and I'll be hosting this season to talk about the different meanings we attach to our homes, building new stories from our collections that connect to contemporary issues. We invite academics, creative practitioners, and students to rethink the past through the lens of the present. At Moda, we normally use the collections to inspire creative practice, but today we're looking at the potential of using collections from a different angle. And this is how objects relate to our most personal and collective memories. And for this, we have two very honourable guests that have come to the museum, Jill Stewart and Alina Tietz. Welcome, Jill and Alina. Thank you. Thank you very much. And they're here to talk about their work in related areas. They both support and improve the care of people living with dementia. Now, dementia is a progressive disorder that affects how the brain works, and in particular, the ability to remember, think and reason. It is not a disease in itself, but a group of symptoms that may accompany a number of diseases that affect the brain. The popular understanding of dementia is not always conclusive or correct. It is sometimes used interchangeably with Alzheimer's disease, even though this is just one of the most common diseases in dementia, which includes a wider range of symptoms. Although dementia is not a consequence of growing old, the risk of having dementia does increase with age. Like other European countries, the UK has an aging population, so innovative solutions are required to meet the needs of older people, both those living independently and those who are in care. The number of people living with dementia is on the rise, and just to give some figures, in the UK it is estimated that 600,000 to 800,000 people live with dementia. The charity HUK estimates that only 43% of dementia cases are diagnosed, and we'll be talking about this in the course of our podcast. And museums and art institutions especially have embraced the opportunities to work in this area in the last couple of years, with many museums launching reminiscing and creative art projects, such as the Museum of Brands, uh, that we'll be talking a lot about uh, today, or the Museums Association launched a dementia toolkit, the House of Memories project at the National Museums of Liverpool are just some other examples. So this is clearly a growing area with the museums, but also also in research and in universities in the UK. So can these reminiscing initiatives and research activities improve well-being? And if so, could they be used therapeutically? And more broadly, how is this connected to thinking about the quality of people's homes and their health? And this is where Alina and Jill come in as they both work in converging areas. And to introduce each of them, Alina is the Community Development Officer at the Museum of Brands. She has worked as a producer at music and arts festivals and briefly as a researcher in an advertising agency. She currently leads a community project at the Museum of Brands looking at how branded objects can be used for reminiscence with positive health effects. Jill is Senior Lecturer in Environmental and Public Health at Middlesex University and has an extensive research track record focusing on housing and health, on the histories of public health and more recently the intersection of dementia and housing which will be today's focus, especially how home environments can be adapted. Before we start getting into the topic of dementia, I wanted us to get us going with some reminiscing. And I've asked each of you to think about an object that has important personal memories for you. And Alina, I think you're going to be talking about a slinky. Yes, that's right. <laughs> and Jill, you've also brought some personal objects here today. So if you could just each tell us a few words about the object that you chose and something about it, about the associations that this has for you. If you want to start, Jill. 
What I brought along today is a ladybird book and it's called The Story of Our Canals. So I think many of us grew up with ladybird books and one of the first thing that strikes me on the back is that it cost 30p. So I've probably had this book since the mid-70s perhaps, but what I associated with, with is very comforting thoughts and sitting with family and reading it we also lived near canals and I always used to like the the painted jugs and so on that were on the canal boats and another reason I've brought this along is because it's it's about my past and recalling and reminiscing but it's also been an important thread in my professional life because obviously I now teach housing and for many people still live of course on on narrow boats of various forms it seems to me that this been has been an important thread running throughout my life i brought an old childhood toy called slinky which hopefully quite a few of the listeners may be familiar with if you are not it's uh, essentially a spring it's silver colored and it makes this sound <laughs> which I have recently learned that, is, that the sound is the reason for why it's called a slinky, because it apparently is a slinky sound. I had one when I was a child. So I grew up in Finland and when I was little, we didn't have a lot of money growing up. And when I was a kid, I often didn't have the trendiest toys and the things that other, other kids might have had at the playground, but I did have a slinky. <laughs> and... <laughs> It was at the time when everyone was going slinky crazy in the early 90s and I felt so proud of my slinky. I I just felt like I was one of the cool kids when I had one. And only after I started working at the Museum of Brands, which has all kinds of toys and games and, and other sorts of household objects, I learned that it's actually not a 90s thing. It came out first in the 1940s in the US. It's, so it's, it's one of these objects that has sort of kept its charm. It's very, very simple. You can literally play with it in one single way, but it's something that has fascinated children from 1940s and, and it still works perfectly well today. So I think it's a brilliant piece of design and I've only started to appreciate it lately. We have other objects here with us today as well, and these are objects from the Museum of Domestic Design and Architecture. And amongst these are a biscuit tin from the 1880s of Peak, Freen and Company. There is also a ration book. Uh, there are some magazines from the 1960s and some color charts from the brand Ripplin. So with all these objects, uh, some of which are similar to the ones you have in the collection of the Museum of Brands, I wanted to ask you if there's any that have particular associations for you and which are these or what do they make you remember? Okay, perhaps if I start on this one, this one immediately attracts me. This is the Practical Householder magazine and it dates back to 1964. And one reason I'm I'm interested in this is because a lot of my early childhood was, was based on things like this and there always seemed to be practical householder things going on in, in our home as we were growing up. It wouldn't it wouldn't have been at all expected that someone would, would come in and, and be paid to do anything, but we would we would do uh, household things ourselves for sure but looking at this what's immediately noticeable and always I find quite amusing about this is is the people doing the decorating um, are quite different than me in that they look perfect in their clothes without (laughs) anything splashed at all so it's also quite a ideal vision Mm -hmm. of of what's happening as well Mm um, and very different gender roles, as as we come to expect, perhaps from from the era. This one dated nineteen sixty four. 
I chose of these objects something that is possibly typical because I chose something that has sort of developed a meaning to me within the last five years now that I've lived in London. I live in Bermondsey and I chose a tin of Peak Freen's Superior Biscuits, which is this highly decorative old tin. When I first moved to London, I moved to Bermondsey and I was chatting with one of my neighbours because I didn't really know anything about the area. And she referred to the old biscuit factory and I, I, I didn't know what it was. So I looked it up and learned that there used to be a massive peak freeze factory in Bermondsey, which apparently was the only thing that Bermondsey was really known for at the time. And people, um, there's wonderful records of people calling it the biscuit town because apparently when they were making certain sorts of biscuits, there would be the scent of a particular biscuit going around in, in the neighborhood. So that was sort of the identity of the area. And for me, I really loved it because it made me feel like I was a bit more connected to this new city that I was living in. And I feel like these sort of objects can make us feel like more connected to the places where we live in and possibly make us feel more at home, which I guess relates to our topic today. Absolutely. And I think we can expand on that, but actually talking about the project that mm. you've been leading at the Museum of Brands now, this is a vast collection that includes toys, packaging, everyday products. It gathers together about over 12,000 objects, correct me if, if I'm wrong. <laughs> and all of these came from the private collection of Robert Opie uh, originally. So can you tell us a bit about how you've been using this collection precisely to link this to home memories and to develop it, reminiscing sessions? Alina. Sure, absolutely. So we are called the Museum of Brands, but that often doesn't really say anything to people. What I kind of like to call us is the Museum of Everyday Objects and Household Objects. So our collection, which was started by our founder Robert Opie in 1963, includes all kinds of tins and cartons and toys and games and advertisements and things that people would have bought and used and then possibly thrown away. Because our collection is um, things that people would have used every day, we've always known that a lot of our visitors, for them, it's a very personal and almost an emotional experience to visit the museum. And I think that's something that's quite unique and special to our collection, is that most of the visitors that come through our doors they, when they go through our collection, they see things that they would have used and they remember from different decades. And for a lot of people, they evoke memories and often very personal, powerful childhood memories. Having awareness of this mechanism and this link to memory, we wanted to do some reminiscing work in the museum. And having worked a bit with some local charities that spoke and interacted with senior groups, we realized that this concept of reminiscing works with all kinds of people and it also works with people with dementia. And for about half a year now, we've been running this project called Brand Memories, within which we go into local care homes and day centers and we'll start soon we'll start in, in one of the local hospitals as well. So we go in and we interact with people with dementia and we took boxes of objects, replica objects from the museum and we have a conversation about them, what they are, about their history, but we also try to encourage these sort of 
memory moments, the stories of, of, of their own personal life. So we try to trigger memories with the objects that we have. So as you're saying, objects can create this trigger that takes you back to a certain place. And you mentioned already the connection to Bermondsey, but also the connection to childhood memories. So obviously home and our environment are so important to that. And I think that is a really nice kind of segue to the work that you're going to be doing in the next few years, Jill, which you've just received funding from the Association of London Environmental Health Managers to research the current picture of private housing provision for elderly people in London, also those that live with dementia. So can you tell us a bit about this and and the role of remembering or or just broadly within the project, how you characterise this? We've recently received a a small grant from the Association of London Environmental Health Managers. And I should say that my background is as an environmental health practitioner and I've worked in housing for around 30 years now. The role of an environmental health practitioner is to think about the environment that somebody lives in. Um, And the the environment means the immediate house, but it also means the wider community and the facilities that somebody has access to within their neighbourhood and wider living environment that can also help to enhance their health. So we also looked as to what resources there are available in the community in in how we try to understand health and well-being. Our job is very much about interventions and how we can deliver interventions that really help impact on people's health in a positive way. This particular project has a focus in private sector housing. By that I mean owner-occupiers and private rented housing uh, where most of our population actually live and most people prefer to remain in their own home for as long as possible. Obviously with population ageing comes new challenges for our housing stock. Our housing stock is ageing and it might be considered inappropriate and not suitable for an ageing population. However we have had a series of grants over the years which are now very much in decline which relate to property conditions but also home adaptations that become more necessary as people age. We're still in the process of this research but what's already emerging is quite an erratic picture across London of grants that are available and how they're being delivered. We're also thinking around wider issues such as loneliness and isolation and these are issues as well that perhaps Alina's touched on a little bit in that looking at for example activities available to older people during the day and one thing about the private sector that presents some aspect of inequality is access to some of these other services that are already available but people in private sector housing can find challenging to access at times. And I think this goes back to something that we mentioned at the very beginning, which is the narratives that are constructed around dementia. This often seems to invoke anxiety, and we can see that often people that are living with dementia might be more marginalised. As things are, what do you think your position is in addressing some of these issues and perhaps changing these narratives? I feel like we are all in this together and we probably would all like to change the narrative but we can do different things in the area and I think museums and art institutions in general they have a major role in shaping how we perceive reality. We really need to think of solutions to support people and to change the narrative because in reality 
people can still live really well years after the dementia diagnosis, but we still have this sort of a, I think in the latest EU conference around silver economy, they were calling dementia or Alzheimer's disease as the third global crisis after HIV and climate change, which I understand where they're coming from. But then at the same time, if you've just received dementia diagnosis, that's quite, that's not something that you necessarily want to hear. So I do think we need to change the narrative. Yes, and I'd absolutely agree with that and add that one of the positive things that's come out of the project so far is the number of people who I think it's given a bit of a platform to to talk about the people they know who are living with dementia and how hard it's been, but also how they've been able to access different services and share their knowledge. But I think the main thing is it's given some people an ability to start to talk about it more publicly and share the work they're doing. So the project is shining a light on dementia from a housing-led perspective. But I think already there are indications that people working in housing do want to offer a better service and do want to understand how they can offer a better service as well. To think about your respective uh, areas of work, what outcomes would you like to see from this what would you like the benefits of uh, the fruits of your work to be in the coming years well and and in the present as well I would like to see more connected services certainly we have the framework there but there's still some way to go in ensuring that all the relevant services are working together and and at the right times and also it's about understanding dementia more understanding how we can bring about change not just from our own perspective but from the perspective of the person living with dementia and for their carers a lot of our work in environmental health is led from the perspective of the um, housing standards housing conditions but sometimes for people their well-being is more about issues such as loneliness and isolation so I hope also we can think of these as having equal value to housing conditions so that people do have things to do and meaningful activities and that we are able to prescribe these in new ways. There is a long way to go, but I think we're still working in silos, and that needs to be challenged. That's really interesting. Our work is not solely, but much in the in the very practical grassroots level in the community. And I think what we do, most of it works on two different levels. So in the reminiscing sessions that we conduct in different places, what we really try to do is we try to create positive experiences and positive social interactions and we try to enhance people's well-being by making them feel more calm and more connected and less confused so it has a benefit for the individual but we also try to change the narrative about how dementia is perceived like to me it has been quite surprising that even for some people who work with dementia even they may have prejudice against dementia if that makes sense because I was just um, a couple of weeks ago we were in a care home where one of the carers just sort of passing by just mentioned that it's probably not worth speaking to this particular person because they, their dementia is so advanced that they won't be able to respond to you. And that really made me think about the fact that if that is a completely well-meaning comment of, of a person who was just trying to help us to make the most of our time, but if that's an attitude that a person who works in a care home has, then how can we expect a lay person uh, walking on the streets 
feels like it is really worth engaging with people with dementia. And I wondered if we could tease out a little bit what that interaction can be, because I am really sure. interested in the multisensory aspects that you bring into the sessions and how it's not been just about looking at objects, but it's about holding them, smelling mm. them. So do you have some specific examples sure. around the work that you do and how you trigger all these different <laughs> reactions using different senses? Sure. So we, when we go into care homes, we take a box of objects, which includes all kinds of things, really. But the ones that we use the most and the ones that we feel like are the most effective are the ones that are really multisensory. So we have an old Lifebuoy soap. We have an old or old-ish Aquamanda soap. And we have a perfume and we have a box of tea in the 1950s packaging. The way we structure our sessions is we first start by introducing ourselves and, and saying a sentence or two about the museum, but not necessarily get too much into history of it and so on. But then to take out these objects and talk about the history and then pass them around and let people react to them. And often what comes out is... Well, first of all, it depends. It, I mean, we're talking about dementia as if it was one condition, which it isn't. It's a range of different sorts of conditions because of various different factors, including genetics and environment and other things. People react to them in different ways. So you can't necessarily... And people have good days and they have bad days. So you, so you can't necessarily say with 100% certainty that a person with dementia is going to react in a certain way. But what often comes out is they will grab hold of that object. Um, Lifebuoy is a brilliant one because it's a carbolic soap and it has a really disgusting scent, at least to me, <laughs> who is a bit younger, but then a lot of older people feel really nostalgic about it. But people, people take it and they smell it and they make a face and they may exchange a look with another person and even that in itself, even though no words have been exchanged, that is an interaction. And it is something that is sort of on a higher level of engagement than their normal everyday activities are. I think Jill might have something to add to that. Yeah. Yes, I wanted to add to this because when we were thinking about somebody's health, mm. a, a major risk factor is people being lonely, lonely yes. and is isolated. It, that may be more harmful than living in poor housing mm. um, in some situations. Um, with dementia, this can be aggravated because perhaps neighbours, friends, family are embarrassed to come and visit. Yes. Um, so this can affect not just a person with dementia, but their carer who lives with them as well, who may also become lonely. And this is a, perhaps an untapped area, really. We also need to think about how, how it feels for them. Um, they may have already lost a large part of someone who's been exceptionally close and losing friends, family as well because they feel embarrassed, they don't know what to say when they calm, communication, a conversation might be difficult. But I see there's a potential for using objects a lot to start stimulate some sort of interaction even. Mm. So for people, we're mainly involved with living in private sector housing, as I've mentioned, this can be particularly aggravated because services aren't necessarily available um, and accessible for people but if we can think through new ways of community engagement there's a lot of people who are keen to be volunteers which is also good for their health as well so there's lots of ways we can think about bringing what you're doing into the wider community as, as well as the great work you're doing in care homes too. One of the things that I've noticed in the sessions is that there's something really, really powerful about young people and old people <laughs> sharing knowledge. And I think 
One of the um, interesting themes that I keep coming back to in my own thinking is the fact that when you get a dementia diagnosis, you suddenly, on that moment, you shift from a person who is an active contributor to a society to being a patient. And for a lot of people, that's that's a horrible place to be in. And a lot of people feel like, well, now my role is to just sit here and be treated. And that's not really great for anyone's mental health, I'm sure. And and often the most sort of joyous moments in our reminiscing sessions are when our young volunteers go in and pick up an object, which may be a washing powder, a laundry powder box, for example. We have a laundry powder box, um, which coincidentally we have here on the table as well it's an old surf box from 1950s it's kind of like this pop art stylish um lady saying surf boils spotless and that sentence doesn't really hold a meaning for my generation but it does for the older people because they still remember the time when you would boil your laundry and having that interaction having them teaching to younger people how to use this particular laundry detergent and how you would clean your white laundry before you maybe had washing machines. People find so much pleasure in sharing their own knowledge. And I, I wanted to add to that about the idea of someone living with dementia as a patient. This comes up quite a lot in, in my work, and I would refuse to use the word. But we need to see people living with dementia as a, as a social issue as well. The, but the thing about patient, as soon as we start thinking about people in those terms, it, it becomes clinical and it's a different t- sort of relationship. So I, I really choose to move away from that idea this also comes across in our work through disabled facilities grants home adaptations and there's a growing body of literature as well about some of these feeling too clinical in the space at somebody's home and that's a very important issue and and that again can contribute to the loneliness issue and people feeling embarrassed to visit or, or people just feeling they're not living in their own home anymore even though they may have lived there for much of their life for example so i think we we need to really deal with that whole issue as well and that's been quite a, an important discussion point within certainly within my profession and some of the grants that are available So with that, I think we get to the subject of what home can mean for different people and how it can be experienced in so many different ways. Home is a term that's fraught with difficulties, but also one that occupies an important place in our discussion, wouldn't you say? Again, it's a very, very individual thing. We are looking in our study at owner-occupiers and private sector tenants. Now, home means lots of different things to different people, but essentially uh, much of the research is about owner-occupiers and perhaps the starting point is about secure tenure and people knowing they can stay there, people therefore having autonomy, control, a sense of being able to make it individual to their desires their needs and so on one of the challenges we have at the moment is with the privately rented sector we now have people aging in place as private sector tenants who don't have that security of tenure as adaptations become more and more necessary as our population is growing older this presents a lot of challenges to this sector because the landlord and the tenant may have very different motivations for the power relationship so a tenant who may need some adaptations wouldn't be able to do them without the permission from the landlord and that creates additional issues and how that place feels for them as as a sense of home so that's something we picked up on on our research if people feel a sense of home which includes a sense of community and belonging 
And dementia can obviously make some of those things negative concepts as well as we've already spoken about. So the home has lots of meanings and it's a very individual and subjective feeling of space and belonging, I would say. That's really interesting. I'm reading Atul Kawande's book called Being Mortal at the moment, which is so, so, so fascinating. He's an American surgeon, I believe, who has worked a bit with end-of-life care. And in the book, he talks about the history of care homes and about the fact that in many cases, care homes were created to be not extensions of home, but extensions of hospitals, because hospitals were being crowded by people who couldn't necessarily be cured in in the true sense of the word. So the people who otherwise would be in hospitals needed a place where there is medical staff available, but they could stay for longer. And his argument, I believe, in the book is that we started approaching the topic of care homes from sort of the wrong angle. And that's why for a lot of people, they're really, really scared of getting into a care home. Yes, I think this is a very important point. And one thing where we start to focus on housing and the lived environment, we think about a social model of health, not a medical model of health, which is perhaps where what you're talking about, where some care homes have developed from. I guess that was before we were living, as long as we're living now. So health conditions perhaps would have been more physical rather than about cognitive decline as well. And some of the new care homes are, are superb in how they're able to address issues. There's another thing that I wanted to bring up. I wonder about difficult memories and what happens when maybe past traumas come into play. We have one of the objects here is a ration book and I understand that you also made a replica of this as part of the memory box. So that's just one example of something that could bring up you know, memories that are, are difficult, that trigger painful associations. So Alina, I was thinking if you can... Tell us a bit about how you've navigated those kinds of situations. Sure. As you say, we do have a ration book in our box of of things that we do take into places where we conduct reminiscing sessions. I have to say that particularly the ration book hasn't really ever created a very negative response. I think a lot of the people who are now in care homes would have been children during the war. And as we were saying in the beginning, when we were talking about our own little objects, people tend to have happy memories of their childhoods, even if they took place in the wartime. This one lady, for example, was the only person that was trusted with the ration book because her mom didn't trust her brothers. She was the only one who got to take the ration book and then get some things from the shop and take it back to her mom. Because if you lost one, that would have been a disaster. Sometimes we do have situations which are slightly sensitive or difficult to navigate in other ways. Sometimes, for example, when we talk about tea and, and pass around an old carton of tea, People talk about the poverty in their childhood and how they couldn't afford tea because tea was only for, for example, children were not allowed to have any tea because tea was expensive and only adults uh, were allowed to have tea. Or this happened actually a couple of weeks ago when we had a bunch of advertising from for, for summer vacations, I think maybe Edwardian times, and we brought them into one of the daycare centres that we work with and This particular centre is a really lovely little centre in Notting Hill and it's mainly for the elders of the Afro-Caribbean community. And like halfway through showing these adverts, we realised that every single person in this 
adverts is very wealthy white person and with very very posh sort of clothing and parcels and and playing tennis in the stockings and so on and and it, it felt a bit absurd because you could you could sort of tell that these people can't really relate to this i guess our approach navigating these sorts of sensitive situations is that all kinds of experiences are a part of life and they can be talked about and they should be talked about. In that particular case, one of the participants made a comment about the fact that, um, well, they wouldn't have been able to play tennis at the time. And then we kind of made a joke about the fact fact that, yeah, that's true. And don't these people look a bit ridiculous playing tennis in this ridiculous clothing, which is so non-suitable for (laughs) any sort of sports. And you can discuss it. And sometimes history is painful and history is uncomfortable but in some ways I feel like as arts and heritage institutions it's also something that is quite important to bring up that we all have different sorts of stories and not everything is is necessarily as fun and pleasant. So you're both working in overlapping areas and I guess my question to you really is do you see there is scope for more collaboration and dialogue both between museums and researchers and universities but also maybe more broadly housing providers, policymakers? you know what, what is your thinking in in this area? I would say there absolutely is. In fact, what we've been trying to do in our environmental health and public health degrees is to take students on lots of visits. And for example, we're we're currently in discussions about bringing some of our students to the Museum of Brands. Um, We've been working with many of our excellent colleagues across Middlesex as well to look at how we can introduce the arts a lot more into into our science-led subjects. So there's there's lots of areas. And uh, many of our students are interested in dementia, in perhaps new ways and I think many have been personally affected by someone they know with dementia and I can see that it's a a subject that will become much more prominent in our science degrees now. Yeah I completely agree with Jill. I think the point you made about you working with private housing which is a completely different sort of an area than what our sort of main focus is 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 an interesting one because to me it highlights the point that for us it's easy to go into a care home where we know that we will find people with dementia there. But as a museum it's a lot more difficult to find people and reach people who live independently at home with dementia in private sector housing. And I think questions like this are the sort of questions that we can't really solve alone. We need to have collaboration to solve it. One of the things that we have spoken a lot about lately is, is this topic of social prescribing which is being trialed in quite a few different boroughs in London and the idea that there would be people whether they would be GPs or link workers or whomever who would try and link people to the different services that are available but they might not know of but I think if there was more more collaboration between say museums and universities and policymakers it would make it so much easier for us to serve the community in the best ways possible. Absolutely. And in environmental health, we're looking for ever more effective interventions, which by Mm. their nature involve partnerships. We are working much more closely now with our public health colleagues who are working with the the people you're describing in social prescribing and so on. And certainly in order to offer better services now and into the future, we would like our students to go away from here with a much more holistic view Mm. of how they are involved with not just the housing, but the people who live there as well. Yeah, that sounds brilliant. 
So clearly, from your experience, there's evidence that there are positive outcomes to all of these arts and cultural interventions. But how do you go about capturing that or measuring <laughs> it? You know, is there some kind of evidence that you collect? What do you do to then demonstrate that this is the kind of impact that we're having on people's lives and maybe I don't know Jill you might have some thoughts on that also for for your research we do multiple different things obviously with people who are such a mixed group and some of them may not be verbal anymore and who may not be able to um, respond to any interview questions it is definitely a challenge And that's why we do multiple different things with groups that are a bit more active. We do have a questionnaire, which we have adapted from the wonderful program of Age Exchange in in South London. That sort of measures the enjoyment and feeling of happiness and connectivity and, and feeling like they were a part of a social group, which is something that is really interesting to us. But also what we do is we do write down observations. So we try to pay attention to people's body language, whether they are engaging or not, whether they are smiling or not. Um, and it's a sort, of, a sort of anecdotal evidence for us. But then we do ask the carers as well, because they are the people who know them the best. And we collect all kinds of qualitative evidence on whether the carers felt like it had an impact. And we feel like in some cases that's actually, because dementia is a progressive disease, even if you're feeling happy today, and, and of course, depending on what sort of dementia you have and so on, even even if you're really enjoying something today, if you do the same exact activity next week, you might not be feeling that it's so much fun that week for whatever reason. And then we are looking into having multiple different academic partnerships so that we could maybe also engage with that sphere a bit because we do recognize that we're not necessarily the best people to write papers to peer-reviewed journals about the effectiveness of our work and maybe that's something that Jill your department does more. Yes it's certainly an area of our work thinking about the effectiveness of interventions and how we can evaluate them. In terms of housing there's lots of research now to show that focused individualized home adaptations can have a massive impact on people's quality of life as well uh, for relatively small cost as well that's that's another point that's often not not mentioned so organizations like care and repair which focus particularly on housing needs of, of older people center for aging better which has perhaps a wider remit and now really working hard on producing the evidence to show us that relatively small-scale adaptations can have an enormous effect and also stop people having to go to hospital, which is another issue we've mentioned today. And we've tried to introduce a lot of this research to our students to think through a more holistic approach. We certainly focus quite a lot on population ageing and we're working with colleagues, so looking to do a lot more interdisciplinary work across Middlesex University and with colleagues you know, outside of the university as well on how we can better serve the needs of our ageing population. Can I say, sorry, can I say one more thing? Of course. <laughs> which I was meant to say, but I forgot. Which is that there's a lot of evidence to say that aging people who are feeling happier and feeling more connected do need medical services less. They need a lot less GP visits, they need less medication, which then reflects to their carers and their families and so on. And one of the quite interesting things that I just learned recently is that in a prison setting, where people are often completely void of these sorts of social connections, and the environment is very mentally unfriendly to you, people tend to get geriatric conditions, including dementia, approximately 10 years earlier. So if you think about in terms of what sort of an impact the environment and the home environment has on a person's medical condition, 
just by looking at those stats, I would say that a massive influence. And I think that's a part of why this sort of work is, is really interesting. Absolutely. And I think it goes to show we can create the right living environments in the first place. Everyone will have a much better quality of life throughout the extended period some people are now living to as well. Right. Well, my last question was, what do you want to see in the next 20 years? But I feel like, Jill, you've just sort of hinted at that. But I don't know if you want to add a bit. I'd like to finish on a note of of hope, I guess, and and of optimism, because we have been discussing quite complex issues and sometimes difficult. So, you know, if you could decide how the landscape would be in in the next 20 years or so, what would you like to see? I think more empathy and more understanding around dementia and essentially how best we can work together and effectively together to deliver better services. And after all, we might all need them ourselves in a few years. (laughs) (laughs) Speaking of ending on a positive note. (laughs) So I would say that I would like to, in the dream world, I would like to see us finding a cure for dementia. But if that doesn't happen and it doesn't look like it's necessarily in the cards for the next few years, I would, as Jill was saying, I would like to see better support services holistically and throughout people's lives. But I think the conversation is getting there and the practice will get there at some point as well. So I think it's something that we are really taking major steps in as a society. Thank you, Jill and Alina, for joining us on this truly fascinating conversation and for exploring the ways in which museum objects and home environments are shifting the conversation about care for the elderly and particularly those that live with dementia. Thank you very much. Thank you. That Feels Like Home is produced by the Museum of Domestic Design and Architecture, MODA, at Middlesex University. In other episodes, we will continue talking about contemporary issues that emerge from MODA's collections, from the gentrification of London suburbs to the relationship between our homes, everyday things and memory. You can listen to these podcasts and download transcripts at our website, moda.mdx.ac.uk, and you can follow MODA on Instagram and Twitter at MODA Museum, and on Facebook at Museum of Domestic Design and Architecture. You can also listen to these podcasts from your preferred podcast listening platform and we ask you to subscribe if you like our podcast. To learn more about what you heard today, please visit our website and if you'd like to see an object in person, book an appointment with us by emailing at moda at mdx.ac.uk. I'm Ana Baeza and I will be back with more quirky stories, but for now, thanks for listening. <laughs> <laughs>